You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Guys, hello. Um, some Just want to acknowledge some of you will have uh, joined this church since May, and what you may not know is uh, who we are. Well, we have, we have the joy and the privilege of leading this church and have just had the joy and the privilege of having had three months sabbatical every seven years in the vineyard. The senior leaders are invited to take a period of extended leave, uh, which is an absolute winner. Um, we came off everything. Steph once referred to it to me at one point has been like in witness protection. Um, I even changed my number. Um, I've got to be honest, I think I actually needed three months off just to recover from the fact that Leicester were relegated. Uh, the trauma of that is still ongoing. I thought we were doing well in the championship till the other week we lost a hole, but I'll move on quickly from that. It was only going to be a moment, wasn't it, before Paul started referring to uh, football. I'm sure you've not missed that. <laughs> but no, we want to start by just saying a huge, a huge thank you. We are so grateful to have just a brilliant team who have lovingly enabled us to have this time off. And many of you have stepped up over the last few months. Many of you have changed plans and holidays to be here more, to enable us to be here less and to have a break. And we're so deeply grateful for that. So we were only actually in Manchester for a couple of Sundays throughout the sabbatical. The first one, we were in Cornwall. And um, the second one, Paul announced in a rather dramatic fashion, classic Paul, I'm spiritually dead. To which Sophie swiftly added, I'm never going to survive. <laughs> and um, honestly, it probably made me laugh. But I knew what they meant. Not actually spiritually dead or unable to survive. You'll be glad to know. But because, of course, we love Jesus and he is our, our constant companion, our champion, our Lord. Just so you know that. Um, what he meant, what Sophie meant, what we all were feeling was that we were desperately missing you. We're desperately missing being part of the, the church and the community that we are part of. We talked about sneaking in, um, in disguise. Um, not because we wanted to check up on anything or anyone, but just because we desperately missed being with you. You know, this is, this is our family. This is the, the community of God that, that he's placed us in. And we didn't want to be and don't want to be anywhere else. Um, and we, you know, we don't have any problem laying down, our, laying down leadership. We don't find fulfilment or our identity in it. But we are shaped and encouraged and we're challenged and we come to see more of the face of Jesus in the community that we're part of. And we are so thankful for that. We're so thankful that we get to be part of such a beautiful church family that we long to be part of and we desperately miss when we're not here. So it's therefore very handy that there's not been a coup. <laughs> that you've welcomed us back, you're still here, we're here, and we can now live happily ever after. You... Until the next seven years, sabbatical. <laughs> no, not seven years, sabbatical. Yeah. Sabbatical in seven years. That's right, unless there's an ice cream every week. So, um, What you may wonder is uh, what we've been up to. Well, we could share a lot, but we're not going to have time, and some of you may get bored of that as well. Um, and you might, you, know, you might really enjoy a holiday slideshow, um, but we haven't got time for that. Yeah. Sorry. Just wanted to give you a, a quick, quick few reflections there, if we can. People often take sabbaticals because they're tired. 
and because they're worn out. We, we weren't when we left. We deeply loved the church and were committed to walking out a calling. We left after the weekend away and the, the, both of our children were crying with the awareness that we were going to leave you for an extended period. It is such a joy to see how much they love this church, let alone us, and were literally counting down the days until we came back, weren't they? They were. But it's, it's so important to rest and to rest well. Um, I kept hearing the Holy Spirit say before we went on sabbatical, come away with me. And there was a number of kind of senses that people shared with us um, that this sabbatical was going to be less about preparing for what was to come, but more resting and recovering from what had gone before. And, you know, we pushed hard. The first seven years of planting this church and leading this church, we've, we've pushed hard and the Holy Spirit really hasn't stood still. We've been having just a leap into faith and adventure again and again and again, and it's been a joy, but it's also been, it's been tiring at times. So resting is what we, what we needed. And um, time and space as a family just to breathe and just to rediscover the simplicity of just it being us was um, a real gift. We rested well and we rested deeply. And we just want to thank you for making that possible for us. Yeah, we had a, the delight of spending a brief bit of time in the States. Uh, first Sunday there, we went to the Canyon Vineyard in Anaheim, which is led and planted by Bob and Penny Fulton. Penny is Carol Wimber's sister. John and Carol obviously planted and started the vineyard movement that we're now part of. Uh, we had uh, a remarkable bit of time with them. Penny uh, laid hands on us, prayed for us, and imparted some stuff to us, and it was incredibly powerful and deeply moving. Even more so because a year prior to that, I'd had a dream that Penny prayed for us, and she prayed exactly word for word what we dreamt, which was I've no other word other than Shabba, basically. It was, it was really quite significant. There is a, there's a mark on this church, and we're excited for you. Uh, we're excited not only for what has been, but also for what will be and all that is coming. We uh, spent some time at Azusa Street. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but it's a place in California where in 1906 it saw a remarkable revival that... Um, saw an outpouring of God that literally knocked people off their feet and spread to over 50 countries around the world. The news of that spread rapidly, and it was remarkable. We, we are, they were, desperate for the presence of God. Not that we weren't before, but we would say over this time, God's broken our hearts all over again for the lost and for the poor, broken all over again for the marginalised and those far from God. I dare say we'll share some of that in the coming weeks and that will leak out, but the sense that we had was that the conviction has gone way deeper than it ever had, not that we realised it necessarily ever could. We've been led into this posture of repentance and desperation for the Lord. I'd often wake up repenting, not even conscious repenting, not even realizing I was repenting, but I'd wake up and it was it was already happening. It was it was really quite something. Two Corinthians five eleven says this because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. We understand what God has called us and you to do individually and collectively and we have to be and we will be faithful to it. Amen. So this isn't the talk. The talk's still to come, so just get comfy. I'm just going to pray as we kind of finish this, and then, then Paul will speak to us. So, Father, yeah, just thank you. Thank you for all that's gone before, and thank you for all that is to come. Thank you that you, you are the initiator of this church. You love this church. This church is your bride. 
and you're coming back for her. And Lord, we just come again in desperation before you and say, change us, form us, grab hold of us and send us out into the world. I pray that in the days to come, we will see things and experience things that we could have only ever imagined. And Lord, we just, we consecrate this beautiful church to you again. This is for you, it's all about you. It's all to you. And may that always be the case. Amen. Amen. Well, let me just share with you, I think we're going to go for this next little chapter as I start a new series this morning. I've tried desperately hard to think of a job that I don't think any of you do. And uh, I came up with a skydiving instructor. And um, I just want you to imagine just a moment that one of you wanted to be that or to do that. And I don't know why you would, because personally, I actually hate heights. But just imagine the scenario, imagine the training that you'd have to go through and put in prior to even getting on a plane the theory the safety the practicing I've, I've actually seen people do it they practice this like roll thing where you kind of even just jump off a chair and they do a special thing before you land the parachute safety thing all of that but not just to jump and be strapped to somebody else like many of us would but actually to be an instructor a teacher and a trainer of it the hours that you have to put in to be able to do that and to get a license for it. Not just to do it as a bit of fun, but to do it as a job. Just imagine doing all of that, all of that training, all of that preparation. And then right at the end, you get this certificate thing that allows you to be signed off and go and do it. Imagine then never actually getting onto a plane and going and do it. You just talk about it. You tell people on the ground about it, but you never get on a plane and you never actually jump. Something in me, I don't know about you, would be like, sorry, sorry what? Like, are, you, are you kidding? Don't, don't be daft. Why would you do that? But I often feel like that's where we can end up without realizing it in our faith and our journey towards Jesus. It starts to become this head knowledge thing. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. We must do that. It becomes almost like a a religion, a routine, it starts to become something that's quite safe and comfortable and gentle and nice-ish. And it means a lot, but it doesn't necessarily affect a lot. And out of that place, we start to settle for the kingdom of comfort rather than the kingdom of God. And I recently read it phrased like this, gifted people who lead companies, teach in schools, organize events, run charities, often walk through the doors of a church knowing that their ministry in the world will not be empowered, will not be equipped, will not be recognized in the church community and within the life of the church, and they feel disempowered, unable to contribute their gifts and their experience, and they settle into this place of passive convulsion that they're simply there to be faithful worshippers. I just want to say, honestly, please don't ever stop being a faithful worshipper, but it's never meant to be that way. The Bible teaches a completely opposite principle. Let me read to you from John 14, verse 12, and it says this, I tell you the truth that anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I'm going to be with the Father. We 
get to do it. We're supposed to do it. At times that might feel remarkably uncomfortable, but I would say one of the primary things that needs to happen and to be evident is that we're being equipped, that we're being trained to do the stuff of the kingdom. That's one of, I would say, our primary jobs. I hope that is happening. I think I see the fruit of that fully evident among us, but we're going to push harder than we have before on it this term. I want to do a series almost called How To, because we need to be equipped how to do the stuff of the kingdom, how to have friends, how to be emotionally healed, how to pray for physical healing, how to be generous, how to pray for deliverance, how to be wise with money, how to do all this kind of stuff. I want to frame it around the book of Luke. And um, so often when we look at the Bible, I think we quite quickly see and we realize three things. And of course, they all begin with T. I've had months to ponder this, but it's teach, treasure, and tell. What is Jesus trying to teach us What are we going to treasure about it and how are we going to tell others as a result? You might find that as a helpful frame of reference as we we go through this series to look at it through that lens. In Colossians 4, Paul lists off this group of people, his companions, his co-workers, and one of them is Luke. Luke is a doctor. We're going to see and discover a bit more of him and how he operates as we go through and travel through his gospel but I pray this, that we travel towards Jesus. Jesus is the, he's the main point of the gospel. I pray that we get to know him better. I pray that we get to learn to love him more than we ever have. But I pray that we're equipped to do the stuff, that we would have a greater understanding of how to. And the more and the more we start out from that place, that we actually start to more and more do the work of the kingdom. I feel like this week will be a setting the scene moment for the journey that we're going to go on together. We aren't going to go chapter by chapter and verse by verse, but let's just have a quick look at Luke chapter 1. Some of you will have, have your Bibles, but in Luke 1, there's these two miraculous pregnancies that are going on. In verses 5 to 25, God miraculously opens the wombs of this old woman named Elizabeth. And in verse 26 to 38, God miraculously opens the womb of this virgin girl, Mary. Now, most of you are really familiar with this stuff. This is the stuff that you'd have been taught in school, you'll have learned and seen in some of the story of the nativity. Both of these stories behind the scenes follow the same pattern. You know, the angel Gabriel appears. He announces the miracle. The people, both of them had questions, and then Gabriel further explains what God's plan is. And Luke chapter 1 concludes with Mary and Elizabeth together praising God. We see it verse 39 onwards. Sorry, Luke doesn't begin the gospel with this fully grown Jesus. He doesn't even begin it with this infant Jesus. Luke begins his gospel in the wombs of two women. And in doing so, Luke starts to demonstrate to us how God in his infinite wisdom place the weight of the entire plan of redemption on the back of an unborn baby. It's really quite remarkable. And I'm going to try and give you a, a bit of a quick overview without losing you in some of the detail. But we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And verse 6 in Luke 1 says this. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. They were both old and yet the passage says they were righteous in God's eyes and careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. Just because we get older doesn't mean we grow up. Just because we get older doesn't mean we become more like Jesus. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said this in chapter 3, he said, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready for your controlled by your sinful nature. Just because we get older doesn't mean we grow up. May I be like Zechariah and Elizabeth. I want to be righteous in the eyes of the Lord, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. AKA, my, my life isn't about me. It's not about my wants. It's not about culture and its demands. I, just, I don't want to just be a good turner-upper if I can coin a phrase. Some people, as I read earlier, have settled into this practice and this passive collusion that I'm simply there to be a faithful worshiper. I want to live fully sold out for Jesus. Lord, would you remember me? Would you remember us as someone who is faithful right into old age? You don't retire from kingdom business. But just, just for a moment, just enter into the pain of the moment that Zechariah and Elizabeth are facing. They're faithful. They're sold out. They're 100% in, and yet they're childless. And I realize many of you, almost on the, the tip of your tongue, maybe not that issue, but you will identify with this because there is the, the, there's a pain in your heart. Lord, I'm trying to live it out. Lord, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to give it all to you. But the dream of my heart is somewhere still nowhere near reality. The partner, the child, the job, the house. The who even am I? What am I even about? The prodigal children that have strayed far and wide. The family dynamic that goes from bad to worse. The boss that is abusive. The spouse that is withdrawn. And the spark and the connection just somehow seem lost. The friend that seems to let you down. The loss of trust and even desire to refind it. The business that you tried to start that has now collapsed. And the bank balance that just goes further into the red. And somehow in our humanness, we start to combine God's approval with our blessing. You know, I, I think Elizabeth must have felt broken and to blame. She was the one that was barren. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but even the word barren, it feels slightly stark and offensive. It's like a, it's a desert-like word. It's like dry and cracked and lifeless. And as a younger woman... Surely people would have asked her, are you going to have children? And, and, and as maybe she got a bit older, people would be like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll pray for you. And in older age, that whisper would have increased and it had become shame and it had become pain that was starting to surface. And imagine how difficult it would have been for her to rejoice in the pregnancy of other women without feeling the sorrow and the pain 
of our own barrenness. And I'm, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating this. We read it, we can read it ourselves. It says this in verse 25. How kind the Lord is, she explained. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. She said it herself. This was painful to her. Many, many of you here today, you'll be carrying pain. Pain of all the things I mentioned, but many more. You'll identify with, with, with something. We are going to do this in our lives. The Lord is going to use me, and then nothing comes of it. What, what does it look like for you? What is the thing that you would say you would identify with? The church I was in deeply hurt me. I was overlooked, undervalued, worn out, burnt out. This dear couple, Elizabeth and Zachariah, we read it, verse 7, it says this. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. It's too late, is what she's saying, is what the passage is saying. Guys, this, this isn't easy to say and therefore I actually don't think it's easy for you to hear. And I realize I'm a week one and I don't know a number of you, but I know this is a season that many of you find yourselves in. But we have to find ways to learn to serve God through disappointment. We have to learn to find ways to serve God through disappointment. I could reel off many things personally, robbed, lost, losing a child, my dad being snatched of cancer, Steph having chronic fatigue, being housebound, bedbound, the whole thing when I had COVID and nearly died. Many thorns in our side that we would beg the Lord to take away. I know many of these things for you run deep and hit hard. Our disappointments will either make us bitter or better. Our disappointments can have this terrible way of producing theology and at times denials of God's goodness. And I think in Elizabeth and Zechariah's case, the striking thing is that they handled this lifelong disappointment and the social shame with righteousness and blamelessness before God. They served God even though they did not have what they wanted. You know as well as I do, righteousness and blameless does not mean a challenge-free life. It doesn't mean exemption from heartaches or that all of our desires will somehow be miraculously granted. If we serve God for what we can get, then actually we're only serving ourselves. We're not, we, we, we don't get everything we want just because we live well. We may well live past the years of possibility, at times without realizing and receiving our hope. But if we're God's people, we can live righteously anyway because God is our hope. And Elizabeth and Zechariah, they've endured this, tense, this test. And their example, I think, provokes to us and asks of us, will we serve God faithfully through and in our disappointments? No child, no husband. No dream job, no house or car, no season ticket for a side that are in the championship that can't even beat Hull. Will God mean more to us than all of these things, even if we receive none of them? And my, my honest prayer is, please, Jesus, help me. Please, Jesus, help me. We aren't going to have time for all of the detail because time is really short. You'll have to read it in your own time, but it's quite hard to say quickly, but an angel 
Gabriel visits Zechariah and there's this prophecy. And let me read to you verse 13. It says this. The angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will receive and, sorry, many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Just, just as a side point to that little bit at the end, wow. I prayed that over both of our children, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit even prior to birth. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. The angel brings this really good news, and Zechariah's response is, how, how can I know this? This, this, I think, is actually so easy to do. We might feel like we can distance ourselves from that story, but really what, it, what he's doing is just keeping his eyes on the problem. In Zachariah's case, I'm too old. My, my, my wife's too old. You just keep your eyes on the problem. You know, it's like I've, I've prayed before. Actually, for me, the situation just seems to go from bad to worse. The relationships cost me too much. They said this, they did that. Nobody could or would understand. You see, we can't think our problems are great and God's power is great at the same time. We either exalt one or we exalt the other. We can be so focused on our problems that we can't hear God's promises and we fail to believe and see God's power. You will rarely ever need to do this or ever try this in, in Manchester, but if you hold your thumb to the sky, you can block out the sun from your vision. I don't know if you've ever tried that. All you really have to do is just bring your thumb closer to your eye to remove it. You know, sometimes we hold our problems and our limitations so close to our eyes, we bring them so close that we cannot see the greatness and the goodness and the promise of God's power. When our eyes are on our problems, we will not remember God's word and how it applies to us. Zechariah wants proof rather than promise. He wants proof rather than promise. And in that way, this righteous man starts to walk by sight rather than by faith. We, we can be righteous and we can be holy people living in holy places, carrying out these holy acts of worship and yet not believe the fullness of what God has. Honestly, Unbelief is so sneaky. It's kind of the only word I could come up for it, but it can kind of sliver right into the middle of our lives and it can rob us and it can dilute us. I don't want you to hear me wrong. I'm not now proclaiming some kind of name it and claim it faith. We totally, 100% of a theology that can handle pain and loss and unmet dreams. But Zechariah's just had an angel walk into the room. I just want to briefly say something to those of you that are slightly older, and I don't mean to patronize you in any way, but please honestly hear my heart. Don't let your age hinder you from God's work in and through you. You are not forgotten in God's plans any more than Elizabeth and Zechariah were not forgotten in God's plans. You are a vital part of God's plan in his church and in this church. In fact, without you, 
we cannot do the thing that we're actually called to do. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Because Jesus has ordered his church in such a way that older people are actually to bring something and to offer something to younger people. If you need to be reminded, read Titus 2, 1 to 10. You're not simply along for the ride. We don't want you to be people that sit in a corner. And actually, I would say it's to our shame as a culture that so often people who are older are forgotten in society. Because before we even planted this church, we prayed and we longed and we cried out that God would send us people that were older than ourselves. And I just want to remind you that God has a plan for your life. We want you to be active and involved in all that God has for you and therefore for us in this church and this city. You may feel as though young people have passed you by. You may feel you have almost nothing to contribute and that you feel you're too old now. I just want to encourage you, don't use that and don't use age as a thumb that you hold in front of your eye to block out the power of God and to forget all that he wants to do. Keep living for him. Keep serving him with the strength and the wisdom that he supplies because not only do you need it, but we need it from you. We don't have the time then for all the detail of what goes on, but the angel Gabriel rebukes Zechariah. It's really quite stark. Verse 19 says this. The angel said, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you don't believe what I've said, you will be silent and able to speak until this child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at this proper time. I don't want to be limited in all that God wants to do in and through me, in and through you, and in and through this church because of unbelief. Now, please, honestly, do not hear that in any way as a rebuke. I'm not rebuking you for areas of unbelief in your life. I'm begging you to drop to your knees and cry out to God. Mark 9.23, what do you mean? If he can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible for a person who believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Where have we become cynical? Where have we become dry? Where have we become bitter and hard and resistant and doubting and burnt and frustrated? I want to say, come again and go again. I do believe. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. First lesson would be we have to find ways to serve God through disappointment. The second one would be we can believe God's plan even if we don't understand it. I know that sounds strange, but I think that's how it works with God. We don't always have to understand it. If we just drop now into this story, Mary and Joseph and Luke 21, on, sorry, Luke chapter 1 verse 26 onwards kind of brings it to life in six months after Elizabeth has now conceived. And we've now moved from Jerusalem in the, the north of the region of Galilee and we move into the city of Nazareth and we've switched from the religious and uh, the, the capital of the country to this small kind of backwater town with a bad reputation. You know, Nathaniel said this. He said, John 1, 46, Nazareth, said Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Luke 1, and we're told in verse 26 that this young woman, Mary, is a virgin, and she's engaged to Joseph. She's a descendant of King David. 
to be engaged in those days was actually far stronger than sometimes we consider it in these. You kind of need to realize that for the significance of this passage. You can't break an engagement without getting a divorce for sexual immorality. That's how it was there. And now Zechariah and Elizabeth are at the end of their long lives, whilst Mary and Joseph are kind of at the beginning of theirs. And some of you really need to hear this detail because it is fundamentally important that your upbringing your parents, your financial standing, your education, your whatever it is that you need to put in the box of this conversation, your thing that you can't tell anybody because if they knew they would walk away from you, whatever that is for you, what God does in this world has nothing to do with our ages or our hometowns. All of those things that I've just said because God uses whoever he wills. We see it in verse 28. It says this, Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. This unknown woman. We might be tempted to think that Zechariah was chosen because he was righteous and he's a priest. Well, the angel's greeting to Mary kind of reveals that she's chosen solely because it's a matter of God's grace. Mary doesn't actually understand the angel's greeting. How do I know that? Well, I think it says, verse 29, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. How, how could she, this unknown woman, be so described by God? Do, do you ever feel like your life is just too small for God to notice? You could justify or explain why he might notice other people, but you're too insignificant for God to be aware of you. You're just just a, a, another cog in a bigger wheel. It doesn't matter, actually, if I'm in this church. It doesn't matter if I'm on that team because nobody cares, nobody notices, and why bother being so faithful in the small stuff because nobody notices and nobody cares and it makes no difference. Actually, perhaps that's maybe how Mary felt. Let me say even just personally, we're, we're glad you're here. For, for, the, for the weeks you've been here, we're glad you're here. Just as with Zechariah, the angel explains this message to Mary and says this in verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high, the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestors, David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now, you could read, because it does kind of sound like it, that Mary sounds a lot like Zechariah when she then replies in verse 34, Mary asks the angel, but how can this happen? How can this happen? I'm a virgin. That kind of sounds a lot like Zechariah, but apparently there's no unbelief, actually, in the question that she asked because she's not saying, can you do it? She's saying, how will you do it? Her question actually isn't unbelief. It's building on faith. This is why the angel Gabriel doesn't rebuke her, and the angel assures Mary, and he assures us, and says this, verse 37, for the word of God will never fail. The moment you, ad, uh, you admit the existence of God, you've got to deny the impossible. So you may have a list of things to you that seem impossible, but when we admit the existence of God, we've got to start to deny the impossibility of those things because with God, it's nothing that a barren woman and a virgin woman would conceive. In fact, that is just like God. 
Zechariah stumbled with unbelief and Mary responds in faith. Doesn't she sound a lot like Isaiah when he said in Isaiah 6, here I am, send me. Similar kind of phrase. Doesn't she sound like a, a lot like Esther in Esther 4 where she says, if I perish, I perish. Doesn't she sound a lot like Ruth saying to Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God in Ruth 1. And it brings to mind Job where he says, even if he kills me, I hope in him in Job 13. And it reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying in Luke 22, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is how faithful people respond to God's plan, even when they don't understand it. What must Mary thought about the Lord's plan? The only way a person can generally say what Mary says is to believe that God's plan is better than our plan for ourselves. God's plan is better than our plan. When Mary responds in faith, she faces the potential of public shame. She faces the prospect of a divorce, even a broken engagement, even never marrying. She would likely wear the shame of her day and be forced out of her home and she would be poor. And Mary faces all of this in the back of her mind and yet she speaks in faith and she says in verse 38, Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And she concludes basically saying, whatever your will is for me, let it be. And, and, and like Mary, we can't just be servants of Jesus unless we accept his plan for our lives. He cannot be our Lord if we insist in ruling and directing and leading ourselves. And if he's Lord, then we're servants and glad servants of God. And this, I think, is how faith responds to grace. When God promises you a saviour, we say, let me have him. Let me surrender. Let it be so. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And I say that of myself, and I say it over us as a church. I don't, I don't want it my way. I don't want it our way. I want to dare to believe that we love God, we love each other, we feed the poor, we reach the lost, and we multiply multiple expressions of this community to do the same. That we would believe that he has anointed you to bring good news to the poor and that he sent you to proclaim that the captives be released, that the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I can't settle. We can't settle for half of the gospel. Some of your lives, your whole life purpose and the direction of who you are and what you're about need to change as of this moment forward. We have to find ways to serve God through disappointment we can believe God's plan, even if we don't understand it. Final thing, and don't panic, it's brief. We should praise God for his work, even before it's completed. Mary learned from Gabriel that her cousin Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Elizabeth had kept her pregnancy hidden for five months. You can read it in verse 24. Now Mary knows and she travels to the hill country in Judah to visit her cousin. And these two women, they meet together and they erupt with joy. You can read it in Luke 1. They're not just joyful because they're both having babies. That's one thing, but it's more than that. They know that the Lord, our God, has shown them favor. And they know the inside scoop on God's plan for his children. And there's, there's something more than just a joy. It's like a supernatural joy. And once Mary walks into the room, Elizabeth announces without prior communication that Mary carries her Lord. 
Even the fetus John leaps for joy in his mother's womb when Mary carrying Jesus enters. Elizabeth, who confesses Jesus as Lord even before Jesus is born. Let me read it to you. Verse 41, it says this. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed what the Lord would do when he said. How, how does she know this? Jesus is Lord is, is kind of one of the earliest Christian confessions. Paul tells us that not only, sorry, no one can truly call Jesus Lord unless the Spirit gives him that ability. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 12. And the Spirit gives Elizabeth that ability. And he gives that ability to anybody who believes in Jesus. In the power of the Spirit, we should proclaim it loudly and proudly to anybody who would listen to the ends of the earth. We want to be people that follow Elizabeth's example and proclaim him to be Lord to everybody. Elizabeth knows that, and that fulfillment is at hand, and Mary has believed it too. God has a plan, and God has a plan for you. And our most, our most basic part in that plan, honestly, is this. It's just to believe it. These two women, I think, are models of faith. They believe before the plan is fulfilled. How can we not now believe, knowing that the plan is fulfilled? And we travel through Luke, I hope, I pray, that we're just going to look and gaze upon Jesus. I pray we would believe, and I pray that we would cry out to him, Lord, help me, help us collectively in our unbelief. I pray that he would teach us that we'd treasure him and that we would have boldness to tell everybody about him. Teach, treasure, tell, and that we would be equipped, deeply equipped, not just to think about it, to know about it, but to do the stuff for the kingdom together. Why don't we stand together? If you're new in the room, this is what we're going to do. We're going to wait on the Spirit of God to lead us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to shape us, to mould us, to reveal more of the Father among us. If you're comfortable, you might want to close your eyes as we do that, just to remove the distractions. We say, Lord, we submit and we surrender afresh to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Manifest presence of God in us and upon us. We welcome you. Just be comfortable in waiting. We wait for him. It's his presence we want. Come, Lord Jesus.
increase our awareness of your presence. can see the Holy Spirit resting on a number of you. He's here among us. We love his presence. And we wait for him. We're at his mercy. What he wants to do among us. Paul's given us lots to think about this morning. I think for some of you, um, you just feel compelled to, um, or perhaps will respond to this invitation to reflect upon holiness, the holiness of God. In his presence, we join in with his holiness. We're changed in his presence. So that's our prayer. It's always our prayer. Lord, be among us. Work among us. Change us in your presence. That we always leave here changed. I think for some of you, there is going to be a restoration of barren years. Yeah. Or perhaps even the perception of barren years, but there is restoration. Yeah, Lord, reveal that. Reveal it. Some of you, it's relational. Some of you, it's a marriage. Some of you, it's a workplace. Some of you, it's a church relationship. Some of it's family-based. It's community-based. Lord, reveal it. Reveal it. You're the healer. You're the restorer. You long to visit us. You visited Mary. You visited Elizabeth. Come and visit us. Come and be the God, the healer in our time, in our day, Lord. We cried for it and we prayed for it. We longed for it. Come and redeem, Father. I feel really strongly some of you need to not let pass by what is and is about to happen to you. This is a monumental moment.
Some of you, I think, have like a real uh, lethargic feeling at the moment. Some of you, I think, is, it's like you, it, there's nothing there physically, but it's like you have a weight on your shoulders that is almost quite oppressive. It's leading you feeling tension. There's headaches that are linked to it. There's almost like a, um, you, you feel quite confused. Things are a bit like you, you're jumping around because you've just got too many things coming. It's almost like the burden of a new term and a new season. It just feels consuming and overwhelming and there's like a anxiety that rises. And there'll be that for some of you, but a whole host of other things physically that we know Jesus as a physical healer, as an emotional healer, as a spiritual healer, as a relational healer. We want to present ourselves before the presence of God and say, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Come and meet with us afresh today. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.